In this episode, I am joined by two of the players from the regular in-crowd, Mr. Pickles and Longshanks EPG, as we talk about character generation, and I run out of energy talking all about fatigue. Welcome to the Mithras Matters Podcast, Season 1, Episode 19, joining in with the character generation. Welcome to Mithras Matters, a podcast dedicated to the Mithras rule set and all its supplements. As always, I'm your host, Inwills, and welcome to December. Yes, the countdown to Christmas has started. Before long, we will all be enjoying great food and great company. You might as well do as I do and just resign myself to failing a whole load of willpower checks and then get back to the exercising in the new year. Talking about new things, have you seen that there's a new area on the Tapper Talk discussion forums? You might not have seen it, but there's a new forum called Podcasts, Livestreams and Video Plays. This is an awesome addition, since now I don't have to feel like I'm spamming the other channels with all my content. But, more importantly, I do like to try and promote engagement with this podcast, so please do answer the questions I pose throughout on that forum. It is well worth creating an account there and joining in the discussion since there is a wealth of expertise out there. Anyway... Without further ado, it's straight on to the campaign updates. When I started GMing Mithras, I literally knew nothing about the rule set. I blundered through the sessions learning as I progressed. Yes, I had read the rules, but like anything, there is a huge chasm between reading the rules, understanding the rules and then applying them. One thing I'm always keen to do, and this probably makes my life harder as a GM, is to implement all the rules which are in a system. I consider all rule sets to be balanced, and so it's important that rules are not missed or left out, since they all contribute in some way to the game balance. I saw a post on the Tapper Talk forums this week when someone exclaimed, I now understand about fatigue. I have yet to get to this point in my understanding, but I do use it within the campaign, especially in combat. In episode 18 of this podcast, the one before this one, I had a really inspirational discussion with Dan True, all about combat. And one of the questions that I posed was about fatigue in combat. I really like the idea that as combat progresses, characters need to resist getting tired as they continue to engage with weapon swings, spell casting and the overall adrenaline rush. 
All the players know that their characters can only last a certain number of combat rounds before fatigue checks are made. These are generally either two or three rounds depending on the character. After this, their endurance is rolled and if they don't manage to succeed, they actually gain a level of fatigue and all the negatives which accompany this. I really want the combat to feel realistic in this sense. Plus, I want players to consider how to bring the encounter to an end as quickly as possible. There was once a battle with a giant centipede in the series of adventures called in the Library of the Mystics. This was an actual play that you can find on my YouTube channel. This was the worst combat I've ever GM'd. I was still in the mindset of D&D when I was going to get to the point in combat when one of the participants was either dead or incapacitated. It was dreadful. In the end, everyone was so fatigued that I just imagined them all, including the centipede, just huffing and panting and not being able to swing a twig, let alone a sword. Lessons were learnt and now I tend to bring combat to a close when it is apparent that one side has won. But I was interested to know if you actually played the fatigue rule in combat. Is it something that you really like or that you've never bothered with? As always, do add your thoughts in the forum discussion on the Design Mechanism Tapper Talk website. The post that I mentioned previously. Anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing your views. I hope you don't mind letting me have a moment of self-indulgence in this episode. We have a really great gaming group, what we call fondly the in-crowd. Altogether, they include myself, Longshanks EPG, Mr. Pickles, Medivac the Healing Hoover and Captain Kangaroo. Their RPG experience ranges from not much to epic quantities and they all bring something very important to the campaign. Usually, I reach out to other people in the community for the interview section, but I wanted to self-indulge myself this month, and I invited the in-crowd along to the studio to have a chat. With two of them able to attend, I wanted to have a good three-way discussion on character generation. So, without further ado, I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Longshank CPG. I've been, I'm fairly new to role-playing. Well, fairly new. Yeah, fairly new. I've been role-playing with Inwills for four years now? Four and a bit? Something like that. Um, so I don't really know what I'm doing half the time. Make it up as I go along. Um, and and that, that's how I'm going to roll with it. And who, who do you play in the campaign? Oh, and in, in the current Mithras campaign, I play the noble warrior Hengus. Hengus, that's um, correct. Who loves who loves a bit of a Barney. Yeah, brilliant. And who else do we have today? I'm Adam Vick. I play uh, Mr. Pickles, who plays Barlaby Fumus, our theist in the squad. Um, I've been playing uh, and DMing a lot, a lot of different RPG systems um, for since I was a sophomore in high school, um, so for a long, long time. But I've only been playing with Inwells for the last few years. Um, it's been a very, very much great experience learning Mithras and all that it has. You do you, you do realize that you lost me at sophomore? 
<laughs> what soft, sophomore? The second year of high school. Like yeah. Like when you'd be fifteen to sixteen. Oh, that's even more complicated. Because <laughs> that, that's the end. That's the end. Fifteen and sixteen is the end of our secondary school system, and then we go on to college, sixteen to eighteen, and then you really, know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why I have no idea what. So in America, oh, my bad. Um, in America, yeah, they do their their compulsory schooling is to eighteen, isn't it? Yeah, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Yeah. So see, we I had no no idea about that at all. I was just looking the first episode of D and D fifth edition that actually starred you, Longshang CPG, with your druid. Yeah. Um, went was on the twenty seventh of November two thousand and sixteen. So yeah, four years. Wow, yeah, that, that that's right. when it, that's when it came out. Yeah. Okay then. So we, we're going to be talking about character generation today, and the characters, the sorts of characters that we would like to play. Last episode was all about combat encounters, and I thought it would be nice to have some of the in crowd actually on the podcast i know mr pickles you've been on one before um but longshank cpg you haven't at all so i thought it'd be really nice to have you on and so we can talk about characters so let's start off with the idea what what sort of characters do you like to play either in their role or personality what what do you naturally go for i think i've always had an affinity and i'm sure intervals can uh, agree with this for combat characters uh, mainly melee ones i mean i've been playing hengist for three years um so that's a huge part um and i've played the one stint of um, D 5e that i played when i played a druid he was a combat druid because he turned into a bear um so it, it is even my magical characters are, are combat orientated and melee orientated i think so i think that's the one i sort of resonate the most with and do you like them to be gallant fighters because i i know a lot of people like sort of like the barbarian type fighter you know and but hengis is very much a a noble fighter yes um, i think that's how hengis has, has developed into when i when i first created him he definitely wasn't and the first few stories he definitely wasn't a noble warrior but no um any any sort of combat you know a, a gutter fighter gives me i think would give me a, a, as much joy to play as, as hengis would what about you mr pickles what do you tend to go for i have always tended to go for casters and it used to be i loved wizards um especially specialist schools and everything right uh, I, I started with third edition dnd so that's where my history comes from. Um, but that sort of changed uh, a little bit prior to me joining you guys uh, to where I wanted to play a healer support kind of caster. And that's that's how Barleby was born, certainly. In fifth edition and early editions of Dungeons & Dragons, there was always the alignment system. And Mithras is quite devoid of that. And I, I'm actually quite pleased it's not there because as people might realize, I'm not a great alignment lover. So what do, do you like? Sort of like the good characters either of you or do you prefer the the evil characters what what's your favorite i have a much easier time playing good characters <laughs> i feel way too much guilt when i do bad things and that even comes to just playing another character i feel guilty uh, when i do evil things so I, I tend towards um good but i like that mithras replaces the alignment system i think personally with the passions 
makes it so it's it's more of a, an abstract or literal thing that you're aligned with rather than the, the rigid and uncomfortable alignment system. I, and I think that allows characters to develop by creating new passions or replacing the passions. So where do you both start when you're creating a character? What What's sort of like your process? Where, where do you start from? Um, I tend to draw my, my basic concepts from books, TVs, like the characters that I like in certain books and certain TVs. I think, oh, I like that quality or Oh, I like the bit when they did this. How can I incorporate that into a character? And I find that's my sort of my real building block, that concept. And then from there, I then look at the rules and go, well, the concept seems to be different with Hengist, for example. I was reading a lot of the um, the Bernard Cornwall Viking books, um, that series at the time. So that's where that started. So like, well, I want to do a warrior and I want him to be this sort of style of warrior. So then I look at the rules and go, how can I build him that way? And that's kind of where he started. And do do you find it's, easy to is it just sort of like the the type of character or is it the personality of the character as well um the personality is the it's probably one of the last things i build in so i work out the mechanics of how he would play and then from that the personality sort of develops when i'm writing the character backgrounds so it's my plan of well and it helps me think of what would he do in this situation if he would do this that means this is going to be his personality type thing kind of reverse engineer it that way how about you mr pickles how do you start creating your character i i would summarize i think in a very similar way to longshanks but i would summarize that i look at a character from a fascination with a mechanic or a quirk so i either have something i want to be able to do or something i want to be and i think with mechanic is when i usually go for my caster types and quirk can almost be anything i had an idea for an ogre using a system where ogres were a playable race as something that's in society as an ogre that's just a good wants to save cats from trees so that was something where i don't normally go for a a fighter or a tough type but that was one instance where where i did so it it really depends on what i'm fascinated with at the time of creation the interesting thing is is that i run a human campaign because i i'm not a great lover of non-human races and that's not because i'm anti-dwarf or anything but i just think that they bring too many advantages to the table i i was talking to dan true in the last episode and he was saying that he actually has a a minotaur in his campaign a player plays a minotaur what are your what's your opinions about non-human do do you like other races or not i like the idea i mean we've when we played um, Shadowrun together, Bindles, we I played an elf quite a lot in time once before we before I swapped to see humans. But no, I'm I'm always quite open to to that. And I think they do bring a different quality. But I think it needs to be in the right setting, such as with Mithras. It's it that they're not there. So that's that's brilliant. But I think if, if we were playing a different style of game, then then yeah, if the option was there, I would probably quite happily play one. So I've always wanted to play a, a face troll in, in Shadowrun because that that seems like in the Shadowrun world, the stigma of the trolls not being sort of like very socially liked and being socially capable in the, in the rule set. So that's always fascinated me of how you could pull that off. So I would like to if I could. But. What about you, Mr. Pickles? Are you a, a non-human person? I think as a player, I like the idea because it gives you so many things to to paint your character with. And it's, it's much easier to create a personality when you have oh, I'm an elf, and elves tend to be like this, so I'm playing like this. But as a, as a writer or a GM, I think I very much value 
taking out all of those common fantasy, those common high fantasy things. Because then when you bring in anything that looks slightly different or strange, it's much more impactful for your players. You, you see an elf and elves don't exist. Is that, that makes the elf much more important than a than they would be in a standard high fantasy all races in. Yeah, and, and in those your games, uh, exactly that. Um, I remember when we had the, um, Mr. Bartleby and I shared dreams about that mysterious elf lady. That was a long time ago, but that. Um, and then with the more recent spoilers, by the way, if anybody's not watched the most recent episode of, of Inwells' um, campaign. It's all right, nobody watches them. It's all right. <laughs> but there were spoilers warnings there. Um, when the when the, um, the the mad wolf thing started to arrive and when we've had the goblins and the frog people, it's it makes such an impact. Um, and it impacts how I play and how Angus would react as well, because he knows that this is a gribbly that's probably not going to let him. He has to kill them, as opposed to if it's a human, he might attempt to try and let them live, even if they're the bad person. I, I always have this real issue with non-human races and Mr. Piglet, you almost like alluded to it in the sense that they are so stereotypical in the way they're portrayed. And I feel sometimes if somebody says, I want to play an elf, then you're immediately going to slim daggers and bows and that there is no such thing as a, a tubby elf or something like that. Mm, that's an idea. <laughs> but all dwarves, I think, are going to be short, speak with a Scottish accent and carry axes. And I, I really hate that stereotypical view on of races. Well, I think a human, the human race, doesn't have that label, doesn't have that stereotype. And I'm just wondering if I asked you to play a minotaur, would it just have a gruff voice that and carried a big halberd or something? I'd have a very, very high-pitched voice if I played a man. <laughs> I'm starting to think a, a Minotaur caster would be amazing right now. <laughs> but but that's, that's, that's me. <laughs> well, I think for me, what I want players to create is their own character. And in that, I want that character to be unique. I don't mind that it shares qualities with other characters of fiction or film, but I want it to be its its own self rather than being a stereotypical view of a race, you know, in the campaign. So the Mithras system uh, for creating characters, I'm really interested in what you think about it because you've both been through the um, the actual system. And just to remind you, you um, we do attributes and we'll talk about attributes later on, but it's this idea that you pick a culture and then you have your profession and there's only certain skills that you can have from the culture and the profession. Then you have a whole load of background options that if you want to, you can randomly generate, but we tend not to. There is an option to have older characters and younger characters that actually alter the amount of skill points you have. And then there's passions at the end that you can create, which we've talked briefly about. But let's go right the way back to the beginning. What's your, do you like the idea of having a culture and then a profession? Um, what do you think about those? that system um, oh, oh, sorry Mr. Pickles I'll, I'll get best um, I really like it a comparatively new role player the book is 
really, really well set out. And the whole idea that it gives you a very structured way of building the character that you can then choose. Obviously, as you said, you can randomize or not, or you can choose these bits or not. So you still got your choice there, but you've got that brilliant structure to help you develop your character that is going to be a playable at the end. And the last thing you want to build is an unplayable character. I, I, I feel a little conflicted on it. Um, I, I like that it helps to create a more rounded character in a, in a logical, real sense. It's going through your culture, what you grew up with and your profession. And, and it helps to build a background more naturally, I think. Um, and I especially love the passions because that, that makes it very easy to pick up a character and, and say, this is what they're about. The only part I, I feel a little conflicted on is, is that it can be difficult to make some ideas work as effectively. Uh, like if you really wanted a, a very specific type of character, you might have to spend all of your, I, I believe it's like your background or your hobby skill points at character creation to, to get what you, you want. But I also think that in a medieval sort of society that makes more sense is it can be harder to get all of the specific specialty skills you might want. I, yeah, because the, the hobby skills, you, you can then use that to um, actually get a new skill that wasn't actually in your background, etc. And I think that I, I often worry that people are going to be stereotyped because of the cultures, you know, that you have the barbarians, you have the primitive, you have the civilized. And I, I just wondered, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting from a, a GM's point of view, because I can only, I've never made up um, Mithras character, but I make up NPCs all the time. And I don't actually go down that route. I have a more open and consistent, oh, I'll just do that, that and that. So people like Sylvester McCoon, you know, didn't go through a character generation at all. I don't know whether or not you found it restrictive. I personally didn't. Um, I, and I, I meant more that I could see where people would, in certain instances, find it restrictive. But I, I felt it was best to, to build a character. And it helped with background creation because, like, I got commerce and bureaucracy, which were skills I wouldn't have taken if they weren't, like, put on my plate as part of my, my culture and, and, and profession. So that helped me to, to write in maybe what Barlaby's parents did and, and how that might have affected him. Um, I love the background events. I mean, I didn't roll them for Hengist, but I definitely picked and combined more than one, which I thought was really, it was a really well way, um, good way of doing it. Yeah, and there was quite a few in there that I would have picked. I probably would have picked half of them, to be fair, but then I thought that would probably, that I could, sorry, I could have easily have picked half of them. But yeah, there was some definite, there's some definite good ones in there that you can really build a good character around. I think there's literally three pages there is, yeah. of background. And I'm often interested in the, each one um, has... Uh, a range of numbers or uh, a number on the percentile dice. And it's really interesting that you awoke one morning to find a valuable object, one with significant religious or ruling, ruling importance lying in bed with you. You can only get that on a 47. It's just one roll. <laughs> you were either born with or somehow received a, a mark, blemish or scar. That's two percentile dice and I, I would be really interested whether or not there was actually a huge amount of debate in the design workshop actually thinking oh shall we do that one or two you know because there, there, there seems to be no to my point of view seems no logical reason why they would have one or two did, did you pick 
Mr. Pickles, or did you choose or ignore? I want to say I ignored it, but I might not have been aware that those were there. That'd be something good to look into. Um, I, I just sort of wrote what my skills said that uh, I, I felt Barlaby should be. But now I could have had more exciting backgrounds. It feels that Barlaby <laughs> must have something from there. You know, but, uh, 51 to 52 says your, ch- your spent childhood as a slave or either escaping or being freed has significant impact on you. And I sort of like think one of the things about Bartleby is that he almost like has this prior life, doesn't he? In the sense that he was going to be a bard, a minstrel, a musician, and then he got beaten up and his hands were mangled. Is that right? <laughs> That's what he claims. Yeah, you know. And so I, I, I didn't. I wondered whether or not it was actually an an event. I actually don't like the age time, the age table, because. I don't know if you know what it does, but say, for example, um, you can gain more skill points um, according to how old you are. So the older you are, the more um, skill points you get. So you are all sort of like um, an adult, and so you get 150 bonus skill points. And you can only increase your maximum skill to plus 15 and character role. However, if you go to senior or old, you get 250 bonus skill points or 300. And you can actually increase your maximum skill to 25 or 30. It's a nice system because it it demonstrates that how old people are. Do you like that aspect? Would you consider that for your character? I have considered it um, as as a reserve character in case anything ever happened to Hengist. Um, Amriel protect him. But I I don't think I'd go for an old character, but I have thought of a middle-aged or middle-aged to getting on to being a senior character in the past not because of the skill points but because that's how the character concept took me but i do like the fact that i have an idea that the older you have the older you are the more life experience you have and the more time you've had to practice and hone your skills so i do like the fact that that's reflected in in, in the table i as a player that doesn't that, that deal doesn't attract me too much i i think i'd only want to play an old character for a, a one shot where it's more about playing the old character like an old wizard or something um and, and i that would be fun but the that that bargain usually doesn't sell me i i'm not keen on it in the sense that i don't think age plays an important role in a campaign because we're never, you're, you're, your character's never alive, I, not that you die quickly, but the, the period of time that you play for a campaign, you could play an old person, which is 5D6 plus 60. So, I mean, you, you're going to start off age 66, and it, it would I don't think it'll have any impact on the game. And the other thing I don't like about it is that there's not, as far as I'm aware, a negative impact on your on your attributes. So if you're old, you can still have, so Hengist could still have all his attributes and still be old. I think there should be a balance somewhere in that system to sort of like pay off from the both of them. How important, you know, when you created, we use a, a point system for the characteristics. Um, so just to remind you in Mithras, the characteristics are your things like your strength, dexterity, your strength, dexterity, constitution, etc., etc. Attributes are what, what those characteristics produce, like your action points and things like that. 
So how important do you think characteristics are for a character, a character generation? So how strong they are, how intelligent they are. What, what's your role, thoughts about that? How important? We'll start with you, Mr. Pickles, this time. I think they're, they're very important. From a role-playing stance, uh, approaching the game with a brand new character, you have to really be able to tell what your character's like. And I think that a lot of like low level characteristics attributes can be great for role playing or for just coming up with easy ways to describe your character. Uh, Dexterity is Barlaby's lowest. So I just said he has mangled hands. And I, I felt that that gave you guys enough of a good image of him. Mental characteristics help show how impulsive you should be playing or how, how clever you should try to be. But especially in Mithras, I think that the attributes come come through as a secondary importance is because they they uh, change all of the skills. And I think that it's a really good balance. What about you, Longshang CPG? What do you see the char- characteristics then apply to the character? I so I I thought about it because I had I had an image in my head of Hengist and how I wanted him to operate in in combat. So I was thinking he needs he's going to hit hard. I had, at this point, I hadn't decided what weapon. He was going to have. I had decided it was going to be an axe or a hammer or a sword. In the end, I settled with a sword. But I was thinking he needs to hit hard. But I don't want him to be rooted in my mind when I was picturing how he fought. He wasn't. He plants his feet and he swings. He was quite. And this changed in playing. But he was quite graceful. He was quite fluid in movement. So he would move and parry and hit and that sort of thing. So I was thinking he needs to be quite dexterous as well. And so that and that's where I put between those ones. So I think it's size, strength. Uh, constitution and dexterity is where I sunk most of his his characteristic points, character points to the detriment of, of the others. But yeah, I was I was quite happy with how, how that came out. Would I build it if I was doing a similar character? Would I do the same? Probably not. But it would be a different character. It always I, I've got a, a video coming out this this week once. Well, I'm recording it this week about. I I really do think that sometimes we don't engage with the attributes. And I think a lot of games have throwaway attributes that doesn't really matter. And in uh, D&D 5th edition, it, it's always constitution unless you're a paladin, you know, and then you have a, you must have a big constitution. And, and I know um, constitution links to experience modify as Hengis has found out to his dismay, maybe, but... Well, no, not dismay. As a player, I, you know, as a player, I accept that. Hengist is... But then I'm wondering, does charisma come into the actual role-playing aspect of it? And in the sense that, you know, it's it talks about someone with a high charisma, for example, might be ugly or plain to look at, but blessed with charm and wit that more, more than compensates for the handsomeness. And likewise, a low charisma, which might indicate someone who who is radiantly beautiful but utterly shallow and simply meek and i I really like those and you know a good charisma is often useful for those who wish to be leaders and centers of local community diehard loners and submissive followers tend to be the other extreme and i'm wondering whether or not when you create a character whether or not you look at the characteristics and that supports you in your the in the role playing aspect of that character it's it's starting to now um, i must admit when i first started creating hengist i didn't I, I didn't pay attention to charisma um but and i hope this comes across 
um, in my more, you know, sort of in the last sort of like six to nine months worth of playing Hengist, he's started to become, he doesn't necessarily always engage socially with everything, whereas in the past he used to. Um, and that is partly because I've, I've gone, well, he's got a very low charisma. So how would he act in this situation? He's just going to say the blunt truth or he's going to say something, not necessarily divisive, but he just says it in a matter-of-fact way. And I'm trying to play him as a bit of um, the, the person who sits in the background, says his piece, and then if that's listened to, that's listened to. If it's not, then he's not going to force the issue through because he doesn't have the charisma to be able to persuade Mr. Barsby, for example, to go and jump off the cliff. Whereas if he was a charismatic leader, he might be able to almost do that. Or you had uh, before sense it's yeah, before or, sense or willpower. Yeah, it's or, it's or, or you have a really high influence skill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about you, Mr. Pickles? I was just thinking. I I put my charisma for Bartleby at twelve because in my mind he was a bard that was doomed in my sense to never be a good bard. Um, so I wanted him to have just enough charisma that it would make sense that he might try, but not enough to say, yeah, he definitely succeeded. Uh, my goal was always to transition him to a, a priestly role, which he's more suited for. But I, I, I don't think of him as a leader in that respect. He, he's just low enough that he probably does cow to pressure from a lot of the higher priests. Yeah. And he, he's on the way up. And I often want, do you think that, people watching a game should get be able to gain uh, an insight into the characteristics of the characters that the players are playing, if that makes sense. You know, should they be able to sort of like look at how they're played and sort of think, wow, Hengis must have a low charisma or Bartaby must have an average charisma. Do you think that's possible from the role play? I think it can be if the role playing... Um, I know mine's not. If the role playing's good enough, uh, or not good enough, good, um, and the the player is aware of that, um, I've seen sort of like some examples on um, of, of that sort of thing. Um, whether I can do it or not is another matter, um, and whether the audience can pick up my feeble attempts at it is another matter. But yeah, we're we're not paid voice actors or or anything so it's um i i think i that's the goal is to be able to role play mm-hmm. successfully enough that that viewers can say oh, okay yeah he's he's the he's the clever one or he's the charismatic one um but from hengis's point of view the audience would be able to tell he's fairly strong because um i'm always mentioning when we've got the brawn things he's the chap who turns up to do the brawn challenge or if he's um, in combat, I'm saying, and this is my damage modifier. Um, so that kind of gives a hint towards what you're saying, that, yeah, the audience will be able to pick up his fairly strong. I mean, he's not amazingly strong. He's not Zephod, um, is it, was it Zephod? Zephod, Zephod the Mighty. Yeah. Zephod. He's, he's, he's nowhere near as strong as that. He's slightly stronger than average, but not much stronger than average. <laughs> Zephod would be able to pick a house up and put it in his back pocket if he wanted to. I personally think that the the physical characteristics are a lot easier to role play to. And what, one of the things that I talk about in the Gibbering GM video, which you can go and watch, and I don't expect you to answer this, is that I have a real issue about intelligence because you could have a really intelligent character but not necessarily an intelligent player. So if there's a problem, 
<laughs> All I can hear is Mr. Pickles laughing. <laughs> I always have this problem. <laughs> it seems I, I always put intelligence higher or, or when we did the one shot with the mercenaries, I get, get the, the mercenary lady with 18 intelligence. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I'm not that, I'm not that bright. <laughs> so it's, it's, a it is. And I think it's a classic thing that when we're, when I was playing D&D fifth, um, first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons, there might be, that was in the days of the, epic dungeon crawls if you went across the wilderness in those days it, it was something unbelievable but it was just sort of like going to a dungeon and we used to put numerous traps down or code breaking sequences and i have a real issue there because surely the magic user who has high intelligence should always crack those and not the fighter who has low intelligence but is played by a really problem-solving player. Do you find the same in your campaigns, Mr. Pickles? Because I know you GM as well. It, well, it is really hard to make puzzles um, that, that yeah. are both, like, they, they work with the character's abilities and the, and they indulge the player's abilities. So it, it, it is difficult, but I, I don't... I go with Traveler for, for my campaigns and that's similar to to uh, Mithras in that you build your characters as you want. There's no class definitions for, for the most part. Um, and it, I, I think it's Call of Cthulhu had, that has the idea role, which, which I really yes. like yes. that because yeah. I can use it as a, as a prop. As a, as a GM, I can sort of like say, well, roll your idea world. And anybody, who, which is basically... Um, I think it's double your intelligence or times five or whatever. It works very well in that situation. But I, I always want to get the, and this might sound weird. I always want to get the characters to solve the puzzles, but not the players. One of the things I hate as a GM, and please never do this because I do hate it, is when people say, well, the, the answer is white. But of course, my character won't know that because what the play has done then, <laughs> can you see, is just sort of like, shit, nobody can sort of like role play beyond that, I don't think. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah. That's tough one, okay, yeah. then. So let's talk about, I want to talk about more about personality of characters because one of the things that I really like about making NPCs is playing them that that's my favorite bit about being a gm i love to create npcs and i love it when they become memorable so sylvester mccoon i i consider now memorable oh yeah oh every time that name is mentioned or when we went to go and see him i would sit there going oh no not him. Oh, it's so much Please, fun. Please, anyone but him. He was so much fun when he got in there. It was that dread and apprehension of actually going to talk to him. And I think that's so interesting that he hasn't been in the campaign for ages, literally ages. But if suddenly you had to go back and see him, you know, I think we will be saying, hmm. I wonder how Cyrus is going to interact with oh, the pester. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, we need to go map shopping again. We, we have to. Yeah, we're going yeah. map shopping. And it's because he's his... Well, I mean, to be utterly honest with you, he has no skills or attributes. I don't have a character sheet for him. All I have is his personality. And I, I was wondering, when you create characters, how much of the personality 
actually comes through of the character? Is that somewhere that you start from, or do you pick it up as you play? How how do you how do you establish that personality? I must admit, it's not one of the higher points. It's it's something that I sort of like to think about a little bit and then work on as I start playing the character. And Hengis has gone through a few phases of different types of personality for those of you that can remember him at the very beginning three years ago. Um, he's, he's changed a lot, but that's how I've decided to play him because I've gone, well, actually, the way the sort of personality I've given him isn't really fitting in to the world. So I've tried to slowly adapt and rather than just going one session to the next session, have a complete personality shift um, as if he's woken up as a different person the next day, I try and build it in slowly. But I have I have thought about it a little bit and I'm, he's, he's slowly working his way towards where I think the personality that I've now well, as a player decided fits best with the party in the world and him developing as a person as well. So you, you, you said at the beginning of Longshang CPG that you're a, a sort of like beginner role player. Um, do you think that's one of the things about being that, um, doing the role playing for the first time that you have to search around for how you actually want a character to behave rather than approaching the game more experienced people might approach the game and say this is what i'm going to be like i think so um but also the thing is with me is i knew of role-playing games and until you sort of said i'm starting to think of one i had no of no idea i mean i'd heard of D and i would heard of the stereotypes that went with it but that was my experience of it and as i've engaged with the different systems that we've played and the different characters i've had with you i've deliberately gone off and watched other things and um, you know watched other games and that sort of thing that's available on on youtube and things and as me that's part of where as a player my development and understanding of role playing as a player has started to finally kick in after four years and that's where the development of hengist is coming through from right because i've gone well this is actually you can do this it's okay to do that but I know now that if anything happens to Hengis, partly because I know how the game works now, Mythras works now, and it, all my learnt experience as a player has come through, I know that my next character, whether it's in Mythras or um, as in the world that you've created in Minda or a different version of Mythras, would be very different. He would, he would have, or she would have a personality built in at the beginning that I would then be able to maintain rather than chopping and changing and developing. Because I, I, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that I hear Cyrus say at, in his introduction every time we play is that Cyrus always sort of like says something that is along the line of, I'm still trying to figure out where he's going. I don't know where he's going yet. We're making a few mistakes as we go along. So he, and I think Cyrus is quite, Captain Kangaroo is quite an experienced role player, Mr. Pickles. He, he was one of the players that, uh, as I started my DMing back in, in uh, high school, is, is he was one of my first players. So he played a lot with me um, and a few other people um, that you might know. But. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know whether or not that is Cyrus developing as a character, trying new things, or whether or not it's because it's a new system, a new rule system, because I think that can also impact on it. What, what about um, Bartleby? Did you come ready with his personality all set up or is it something that's developed in the campaign? I definitely didn't bring bring a personality to the table. Um, and I think 
in, in the two ways that I make characters, mechanic or quirk, uh, with quirk, I have the idea of who I want to play in my mind already. And then I just approach the setting and, and apply that character to whatever encounters happen. Yeah. But because Barleby was more of a quirk, I came in, or a mechanic, I mean, I came in wanting to help people. And so I just looked at my character sheet and, and thought, well, how can I try and help people and ingratiate myself? Uh, I, I, looking at lore monsters and talking about goblins was one of my first roles, I think, in the game. And and as you've given me situations, I've been able to say, this is my personality in this case, and, and then apply that to, to the board and, and continue on. And I, as you give more situations where it's what would Barley do, I'm able to say, this is the personality. So I find that really interesting because do you think that the GM actually contributes to your your characters, both of your characters' development by by putting opportunities in there? It is, And if yeah. the GM hadn't put those opportunities in there, would your characters be completely different now? I think it's a dance. You, you both have to be working together. You can have <laughs> players who know exactly what their characters are, but if the setting doesn't really give, uh, or the adventures don't give anything to express that, then... You know, nothing really happens. And the same goes if the DM makes a really interesting setting and adventures, yeah. but the players don't really indulge it at all, then it can be problematic. So it has to be both ends are working together and reacting. And yeah. And, and I, f- I find that really interesting because I feel that I almost like orchestrated Bartleby's love of the slums. A hundred percent. That was yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. But, but I could never foresee his friends of the guards. That that was something that literally came out of nowhere. And I forget how it actually happened. I think you just went off to find out information or something like that. Was that Yes, it? but I brought a bunch of money and I tried really hard to 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 show that I was a friend of the guards and that I'm I'm a good I'm a do-gooder. Exactly. Um, and and I think, I think that's, that's a really interesting one. And I know with um Gulliver, I I I tried to tempt him with the Black Order just before he stopped playing. And I actually, I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can switch this character. And there were several times during that adventure, I don't know if you remember it, that I suddenly thought, he's going to change. He's actually going to change to the black. And then he changed back again. And I thought, oh, I don't know where this is going now. What what about Hengist? Uh, And this is a confession Um, as a player. I am not great with that. Like the individual encounters that you've set up, whether it's, you know, sort of like, um, I'm, I, one I was thinking of was when we were doing the Chaos Mother. Was it the Chaos Mother? Yeah, the Chaos Mother stories. And we went off to go and find um, one of the orbs or the eggs. I can't remember what it was. And we had that dream, lucid dream section where you said this, you know, and you did the questions and the answers such as if there was someone hanging off, their ed- off, off the edge of the cliff by their fingertips, what, what's your first action? Those sorts of things I engage with as a player and as a character, but I must admit I am quite bad at the other part. So I make a big thing of it at the moment, and I'm slowly working it through my head how I'm going to engage with it again. But with um, Hengus joined House Galot however many sessions ago now, um, one of the noble houses of Lindo, and he had his first few sessions of engaging with that, and then it focus moved to the next story, and I stopped engaging with it. And I hold my hands up to that. I'm not very good at that, but it's something that I try to do. And then I sort of, it's not I lose interest. Other world things outside of role-playing catch up. And then by the time I get back to it, I've gone, well, this sort of has missed an opportunity. Like the um, 
was it the Lord of Brass bit in one of the previous ones? That was something I really wanted to engage with, a plot hook I really wanted to engage with, but I missed the opportunity yeah. in that first session. By the time I'd gone away and thought about it afterwards and thought, yes, this is definitely something Hingis would be interested in, the plot had gone. Yeah. And it, it, the opportunity, the role-playing opportunity had been missed. So I think as a player, that's my one of my next like key levels of development. Um, so watch out on your your Discord inbox. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, and I think I think that's interesting because I I think that your two characters and and it's really good to have you two here because you're at opposite sides of the developmental continuum because. Bartaby is his development is very dictated by the church. Oh yeah, you have to have certain skills to go up this level. Well, Hengist has no restrictions. You know, Cyrus is the same. He has very set skills that he needs to increase, but Hazra doesn't. And I just wondered, do do you find that um, Bartaby's channeled too much? I, I, I actually don't feel that way, mostly because almost all the skills I chose um, really fit with the church. Um, so it was stuff I naturally wanted to build for Barleby. And I had enough uh, of progress that I was able to buy a lot of spells and I've been able to buy some new skills like the lore of Lower Lindo. Um, and after I got Endurance up, which was my only skill that was really lacking in the church, um, I felt pretty comfortable with it, but I don't feel it, it focused me in, in a way that I had to do that. Um, I still had the, the, the freedom to, to, to dilly dally, I guess, is to just do what I wanted and not really rise in the church. But As in, because you choice. have to increase the skills of the order, there's almost like the campaign is molding Bartleby yes. rather than Bartleby molding um, the campaign. I think, at a, at a certain point, Barleby has lines that that the church could cross and he would splinter away, but it'd have to be pretty egregious. Like the, the, the high priests all actively going against the teachings of Amriel and, or, or doing things that are blatantly so evil and that Barleby couldn't associate. But I'd hope that would end. I would hope that would happen at a point where Barleby could stand on his own a little bit more. And, and I think that's really interesting because in the law of Lindo, the Odess, the continent, that has already happened before with the mystics. And the mystics were a really powerful group of people, but then they actually forgot what their purpose was, you know, and they, and sure as they lost what their purpose was, then their mystical energy left them you know and and that's why i think it's i think okay is the um that there's two sort of like um bands of them now but you i i think a mystic is a really powerful class i really do i really like the idea of them but at the same time i don't want everybody rolling a mystic because you can have a skill that makes all your um attacks level easy rather than standard you know and uh, and that that is a powerful i mean i like the idea of arrow cutting and you know changing your breathing rate but uh, it's just given me a nice 
a nice idea. Do, what about Hengis? Do you think the campaign develops Hengis or do you think Hengis is developing himself? It's definitely both. Um, sorry, uh, mechanically, well, campaign-wise, um, Hengis started off fighting with a sword, a broadsword, so a one-handed sword and a shield, and that's all he would use. Um, for ages and then we started to meet slightly bigger nastier foes or um, there was a um, other part you know, other players came and went and there was a, a key gap in what the party needed um, and that's one of the reasons why Hengis now fights with um, a one and a half handed sword because I didn't want to make the full transition into a two handed great sword partly because of um the, the sheer practicality of carrying around a claymore or a greatsword, he would if you needed to carry it, he'd always have to have it with him. Um, which means you know, sort of like walking down the Linda Street. And this is my hang up as as a player. I would never have him have it mounted on his back because it's an, it's not practical. You can't physically draw one unless you're a troll or a giant. Um, so he would always have to carry it like a walking stick or a cane or hire a child, not a child, but hire someone, a servant of some sort, a squire of some sort, to carry it with him. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I didn't. The other reason why I didn't want him to change from a one-handed sword to a two-handed sword was a mechanical reason, was that he can still fight with his previous combat style, um, which is one-handed sword. So I can, um, and for those of you that watch um, the shows, Whenever we go into the first round of combat, Hengis will always, me as a player, say, Hengis is going to roll his combat style, he's doing it two-handed or words to that effect. But it means I have the option as a player for Hengis to be able to do both. And I think Hengis would make those decisions as well if he was carrying his shield with him all the time. But even if he wasn't carrying his shield with him, um, and this, it, it wouldn't be the same combat style. Um, but sort of like thematically, I was thinking, I wanted to have that as a player. I wanted to have that balance. And I think it, that fits the way I rationalise it. That fits into Hengist's mentality of he's a warrior, so he's going to pick the right tool for the right... I think the, the thing with Hengist was always he has such well. tough armour that people, uh, mobs couldn't damage him, but he wasn't actually putting out... Enough damage, yeah. The, enough damage to kill to kill every, anybody else and i think that's i think i think character development is i think is really interesting and just to go back to um, all the the npcs that i create sometimes i have no idea how they're going to create how they're going to play until people actually meet them and then i almost like do it on the fly and so Sylvester McCoon was completely made up and I just really loved annoying Gulliver. Me too. Yeah. That, that's, all, that's all it was, <laughs> you know, and I suddenly found a way that this person, um, and to be honest with you, I don't know if you say seen the devil wears Prada, but he's almost like based on the uh, editor of the magazine sort of like character in the sense that he's just like, no, I don't care. You know, I am and, more important. Yeah. And Sylvester always called Gulliver <laughs> yes. a girl, didn't but the, he? I, yeah, which really exactly. And because I could see the frustration on Gulliver's face or in the way Gulliver act, I used it more. 
<laughs> you know, because and mm. one thing that I'm really passionate about with any campaign <laughs> is that every action, no matter how small, must impact on the game, on, on the campaign world. And it's a bit like um, Cyrus talking to the bluebird and making fun of her that she was a pigeon, you know, and saying you should go off and join the Red Order. And that has a, an impact because she has. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, and that that wasn't going to happen <laughs> until that that moment. Okay, we've been talking for a while now, and I'm aware how long it takes me to edit these down. But um, I, I realise, Longshanks, um, this might be a different, a difficult character uh, decision for you because you haven't had that many characters. But um, I know, uh, Mr. Pickles, you've probably played a fair few. So in all your RPG experience, you know, who has been your favorite character? Mr. Pickles. Let, let Mr. Pickles go first. Yeah. Yeah. I should buy you some more time, I guess here. Um, I, I that, that's a difficult one um, because there's characters I've loved playing that I've played for a long time, like Barleby, where I don't think I would play Barleby again because I've had so much enjoyment out of playing Barleby um, mm. And I like him a lot, but I, whenever I think of my favorite characters, I think of characters I got to play very briefly and that I'd love to play more. Right. Like um, the one that comes to my mind is Rabbit from the superheroes one shot we did. Oh yeah, I absolutely. I could be an ecstasy. Which was absolutely fun, but I love playing that character. Yeah. I immediately fell in love with her and wish I could play more. Um, so I'd say it's a tie between the rabbit and uh Aaron Weber, the character I made, the American oh, yeah. in our 1890s uh, gaslight. Yeah. That, that was a lot of fun. Uh, All a Cthulhu adventure, yeah. Um, so th th those would be my tied two favorite characters. You actually went insane with that character, if yeah. I... Yeah, Aaron Weber was a character. finished character, completed and in an insane asylum and probably dead by now, but he, uh, he was a lot of fun to play. Yeah. He was one of my favorites. yeah. What about you, um, Longshanks? Do you have a favourite? I, oh. I have a joint favourite, if yeah, that, that's permitted. Um, I think it's definitely, um, and that's partly because of um, the learning curve I've had, and he's the, the type of warrior that I would try to be if, if, if the world was that way, if you know what I mean. If I was back in history, that's who I always imagined myself being, not quite. Uh, you know, so like the knightly sort of character. And the other one, um, I'm really embarrassed. I can't remember his name, but it was my cool Cthulhu character. It was the doctor. I really can't remember his name. It's gone from my head. But that was, but that wasn't because, um, and that's not because Mr. Pickle said it. Um, it's on my crib sheet. Um, but it's, um, that wasn't necessarily to do with the games. It was the people I was playing I, with. I think on that campaign, that I think point, you had, and I had Mr. So Pickles did um, a huge amount um, just by yourselves, didn't you? I think you did one of the adventures um, all by yourself. Yeah. I, I'm just... 
we did a whole se- a whole adventure on our own, and then we had a couple of other people joining in and that sort of thing. No, it will be. I've got a space in my head, I, I, just, I just can't remember. I, just, um, there, I, I, I did look on Roll20, uh, hoping but, but, that the game but, was still uh, there so I could find out, oh, but I, it wasn't. I need to know now. I can't. I, I have to. Oh, wait, I didn't uh, see it on my, my sheet. Uh, uh, I'm there now. I'm going into it now. It'll pop up on the front. I, I really I like it as well. Um, I um you were <laughs> called Dr. Gordon King. Yeah. And then I I, I think um Melvin Bleeker. Um that your was second it. Oh, how can I yeah, forget like, that? That's my grand my granddad's first name and my other granddad's surname. Yeah. That's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, Evan was and I and I think and I also like the um, barbarian that you played in the one-shot um, haunted uh, house. It was <laughs> yeah, but, but sometimes I think it's really challenging for a player to play something that you're not used to playing, you know. And I think that is the. I mean, it's it's really interesting that any game that I've been asked to play in, I've ended up playing the the strong fighter type. I never have anything else, you know, but when I was first playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, if I made up a character, I would be like you, Mr. Pickles, and choose the magic user. You know, that's that used to have 1d4 hit points of damage. Uh, hit points, you know, and if you scored a one, you rolled the dice and it was a one, you know, hard luck, your time was up. And one spell in those days. I don't know what D&D third edition was like, but uh, D&D first edition, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was, was fun. Well, it's been brilliant listening to your character generations and what, how you create them. Just one thing that before I let you go, um, with this will go live in December, if Bartleby and Hengis could have one Christmas present, what what would they get? What would they wish for? <laughs> Bartleby would would very much wish for uh, peace for and goodwill. Lindo to become <laughs> a, 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 an equal place where there was no lower class. It was just middle class, middle class, and you can't change the upper oh, class. Oh wow! How gallant is that? <laughs> what about Hengis? What would be his perfect Christmas present? His perfect Christmas present, I think because of the way he's working at the moment and that he's developing at the moment would be to have that one um, amazing foe that he would defeat and that would make him completely famous so that everyone knows him. It's slightly selfish, but he would then be able to use that fame um, to help further his causes, which is starting to align a little bit with Mr. Bartleby's. There is an alliance going on. (laughs) Very nice, very nice. Excellent. Can I answer though for uh, Hazra and Cyrus? Hazra would just ask yes. for a new spear. Yes, he yes. Um, And Cyrus would would ask for uh, several barrels of food. Yes. Either that or um, a lifetime supply of free beer at um, a tavern of his choice. Yeah, and and I think that's the really interesting <laughs> thing for me about Cyrus is the sense that his willpower is very high, and his endurance is very low. So it's sort of like <laughs> he has the willpower not to drink, you know. So, and that's what I was saying about whether or not skills and attributes and characteristics come into the character. Because if I said, and I think it happened beforehand, I said, right, roll your willpower to see whether or not you resist drinking anymore. 
I, I think his willpower is massive. <laughs> you know? You can choose not to, yeah. but it, it is choice. You know, and I, I think that's really interesting. But thank you for coming along today. Um, Mr. Pickles, your second um, fe- um, featured spotlight on Mythrest Matters. And Longshank ZPG, your first one. And it's been fantastic sharing your character generations and your developments with me. So thank you very much for that. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much for inviting us. I really find talking about characters and how people create them so fascinating. And it was really interesting talking to both Mr. Pickles and Longshanks EPG about how they engage with the process. Remember, if you would like to contribute or appear on the podcast, then why not drop me an email or message and let me know what you would like to cover. I'm always looking for reviews or interviews with people. So if you are interested, then you can email me on inwills at gmail.com or send me a message on the various forums I frequent. Also, if you are interested, I have started a series of YouTube videos called The Gibbering GM. These are based on my thoughts relating to RPGs and cover a range of topics. There are two up now on my YouTube channel. And honestly, I was not trying to be controversial on these on purpose. The next one, I might choose something a little bit more mundane to talk about. Well, that's only a might. One thing which I'm trying to do with the podcast is to let you know what might be coming up in future episodes at the end of each one so that I can whet your appetite and encourage you to come back and listen. Well, in this episode, I've managed to go one step further and the person who will be featuring in the January episode of the podcast has created their own trailer. All I can say is run VT. Dare you face the perils of Monster Island? Coming soon, A Bird in the Hand, a new adventure for the Mithras role-playing game set on Monster Island. The stench of civilization clings to Port Grimsand, a pitiful colony of humanity crouching within ancient Cyclopean ruins. Verdant jungle hungrily awaits trespassers, its secretive natives guarding vine-wreathed ruins. By chance... Adventurers stumble across rumour of a prize, a prize much desired, not least by Coinrad Lorenz, adventurer and bird fancier. A scheme is hatched, a plan to feather your nest, an opportunity for a bird in the hand. But something stirs, a malign will waits. Dare you face the perils of Monster Island? A bird in the hand. A Mithras adventure coming soon from the design mechanism. Available direct from its usual retail partners. Hear more about A Bird in the Hand, Monster Island and Mithras when I talk to Inwills in the January episode of Mithras Matters. I am really looking forward to chatting about that adventure. Monster Island is awesome, so can't wait to see what other dangers lurk in the shadows. And that's it. Another episode of Mithras Matters completed. 
I hope that you have a safe and happy Christmas and there is at least a couple of things underneath the Christmas tree for you related to RPG and Mithras. Next month, we'll delve deeper into the Bird in the Hand adventure and Loz will be along to provide us with an update for all things Mithras in the new year. So until next time, have a great month of gaming and I will chat to you all again in January. Until then, I hope all your opposed roles succeed and provide you with a well-deserved special. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. The content of this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. So please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast. Thank you.